On the one-year anniversary of President Trump's election, the left loses its mind even more than usual. The Republicans are still struggling to pass tax cuts, and I want to talk about why bad things happen to good people. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So what prompted me to think why bad things happen to good people is I'm sick as a dog, and I'm a good person. Why, God, why? But really, uh, I am kind of sick, so bear with me today. Uh, Even though my voice is lower and more manly than usual, uh, I appreciate you sticking with me. So before we jump into the leftists going absolutely insane yesterday on the one-year anniversary of President Trump winning the presidency, first I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Wink. So could you use a drink right now? I sure could. That's why Wink is great. Okay, so Wink makes it really easy for you to get the best wines, and not just the best wines, the ones that are tailored to your palate. You gotta go over to somebody's house for dinner, you don't know what wine to bring, you don't wanna bring a bottle of Manischewitz because you don't wanna look like an idiot, and so you need a wine that goes with their meal. Well, you go on wink.com, you go to trywink.com slash Ben, trywink, W-I-N-C dot com slash Ben, and you take their survey, you fill out their palate profile quiz, and they will tell you what sort of wine goes with your palate, what sort of wine goes with your meal. Discover great wine today at trywink.com slash Ben, and you get 20 bucks off your first shipment. Again, that's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com slash Ben for $20 off your first shipment. Trywink.com slash Ben. It's, the, the wine is really terrific. It's why everyone around here is terrible at their jobs. They're drunk all the time from Wink Wine. But it is true that the, the wine itself is really good and less expensive than you'll, have, than, than you'll get at the local liquor store. It's better. And again, they'll tell you what's the best wine for you. Trywink.com slash Ben for $20 off. Plus, they'll know that we sent you. Okay, so... I could not help but laugh, despite my personal discomfort, I could not help but laugh yesterday hysterically as a bunch of people on the left went out into the streets of New York and decided to aimlessly scream at the sky. No, I am not kidding. It was the one-year anniversary of President Trump winning. If you want to see my reaction to President Trump winning, all you have to do is go to YouTube and Google Shapiro laughing for two minutes because that's exactly what happened. We covered it on election night. And Bill Little, a friend of ours, uh, he, he said President Trump, and it struck me for just a moment how ridiculous and hilarious that is, and also that Hillary had lost, and I just started laughing, and I couldn't stop laughing for a fully two minutes. It's pretty great, but that is not how everyone reacted. A bunch of folks on the left were heartbroken. They're still heartbroken, and they've lost their mind. So yesterday, in New York City, people gathered to scream at the sky. Okay, I, now, these are probably the same people who say thoughts and prayers are, are useless, right? Same people who say, thought, you shouldn't say thoughts and prayers when something bad happens. Now, they are gathering to scream at a sky where there is no God, presumably, and, uh, and I could not help it, but laugh hysterically at this. <laughs> that lady trying out for the Met Opera. But I, I, do, I do love it. You're going to get together and scream at the sky. Yeah, that's, that's going to win. That's going to that's make you guys win. Now, it is true that the anger of the left is going to drive them to the polls more often. I mean, that, that's sort of what you saw in Virginia. But if they think that this is an attractive feature they're going to win elections because they scream at the sky, then I think not. But for the left, they believe that their anger is its own justification. So there are a couple of columns that I want to talk about today that demonstrate just how far gone the left is when it comes to policy and politics. Now, it is possible that the Republicans can be bad enough at this to blow whatever advantages they have. It seems like that's what they're in the business of doing. We'll talk about what they're doing with their tax plan in just a second. And we'll also talk about President Trump in just a second and the divide inside the conservative movement. But on the left... They've completely lost their minds. And so they feel that the only path back to power is twofold. One, 
They have to be as angry as possible. And two, they have to re-embrace identity politics. Okay, these are precisely the things that brought them Trump. It is their anger and their identity politics that caused the backlash that brought President Trump. So maybe there's a backlash to the backlash. That's quite possible, right? That there was a, a, a backlash to the left's identity politics and rage. And that was brought about in the form of the Tea Party. And President Trump was the culmination of that. It is also possible that there's a backlash to that backlash that's building right now. Whatever it is, it ain't good for the country. Two columns in particular I want to talk about today, both from the horrific New York Times. So the New York Times, as Andrew Clavin calls it, a former newspaper, their op-ed page is filled with joy the last 48 hours. My personal favorite column is from a woman named Lindy West, who writes on feminism and popular culture, which already makes you want to run through a wall so, so hard that it leaves a U-shaped hole in the wall, like a cartoon. But here is what she says in the pages of the New York Times, and it's called Brave Enough to be Angry. Really, this is what it's called, Brave Enough to be Angry, which is like, I didn't realize it takes bravery to be pissed. I really didn't realize this. I like when you just take two emotions. How about angry enough to be brave? How about sad enough to be happy? Like, it's such nonsense. In any case, here's what, here's what the column says, and it's pretty amazing. It says, last month, an Access Hollywood correspondent asked the actress Uma Thurman to comment on abuse of power in Hollywood presumably in light of the sexual assault allegations against the producer Harvey Weinstein. Speaking slowly and deliberately through gritted teeth, Thurman responded, quote, I don't have a tidy soundbite for you because I've learned I am not a child, and I've learned that when I've spoken in anger, I usually regret the way I express myself. So I've been waiting to feel less angry. When I'm ready, I'll say what I have to say. Thurman is seething, like we all have been seething, in our various states of breaking open, or, as Thurman chooses, waiting. We are seething at how long we have been ignored, seething for the ones who were told long ago, who were punished long ago for telling the truth, seething for being told all our lives we have no right to seethe. Has this woman ever met a woman? Has she met like a girl? Like girls get angry. My wife gets mad. My mom gets mad. My sisters get mad. My three-year-old daughter definitely gets mad. I was unaware that women are not allowed to be angry. Women are definitely not allowed to be angry. It doesn't mean that they're they're attractive when they're angry because men aren't attractive when they're angry either. In fact, people generally are not particularly attractive when they're angry, but you're seething at how long you've been ignored? Lady, you're writing in the pages of the New York Times. Being ignored? Okay, so she continues along these lines. Thurman's rage is palpable yet contained, conveying not just the tempestuous depths of hashtag me too. God, the writing is, is so bad. I don't know who edits over at the New York Times. They should be fired immediately but a profound understanding of the ways that female anger is received and weaponized against women. And now she's going to go explain all the ways that women's anger is not taken seriously. But does she cite sexual assault or rape? Like women who have claimed they were raped or sexual assaulted and are angry about it and people told them to sit down and shut up? No, she doesn't cite any of that because that's never happened. Okay, no one says to women who say they were raped, why are you so mad? You mad, bro? No one says that to a woman who was raped. You can't name anyone who says that to a woman who was raped. So what are the examples of female anger we've been ignoring? Get ready for this. From Lindy West. Again, this is just indicative of the left's belief that anger is its own justification. Quote, in the past few months alone, we've seen Carmen Yulín Cruz, mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, pilloried by the far right for criticizing Donald Trump's anemic response to Hurricane Maria. We are dying here, Cruz told the news media. I am mad as hell. And the Florida congresswoman, Frederica Wilson, deluged with abuse after she characterized Trump's call to a military widow, Maisha Johnson, as insensitive as an insult. Both Cruz and Wilson were directly targeted by the president on Twitter, then incessantly memed and regurgitated and redigested and re-memed by his obedient online horde. It's like the Huns out there. Okay, first of all, the cases she just cited are not cases of sexual assault or abuse. In one, the mayor of San Juan went out there and had shirts printed that said, we are dying, so she could go on national television and rip into Trump. No one would have paid attention to her otherwise. And Frederica Wilson went out there and talked out of school about a conversation that really was between a military widow and the president of the United States, and apparently, you know, may have 
misinterpreted Trump's comments. So all of this is, we were saying, why are these women angry? Not because they were raped or sexually abused, but because they were getting political. We were more angry at what they were doing than their anger. Okay, but the, the, the examples continue. She, she gives the example of Julie Briskman, who's a government contractor who supposedly lost her job after a photo of her flipping off the presidential motorcade went viral. She wasn't fired because she flipped off the motorcade. She was fired because she made that her profile photo on Facebook and Twitter and works for a government contractor. That's why she was fired. Okay, and then here are some other examples of women who have been disrespected and their anger ignored. Again, uh, this, this is just female identity politics at its best. That if women are angry, we don't have to ask why they're angry or if the anger is justified. We just have to get out of their way and honor their anger. I don't honor anyone's anger. Really, I don't think anger is something to be honored. Uh, not to quote Clavin too much today, but Clavin uh, used a phrase I really like. He says, anger is the devil's cocaine, and I think that's pretty much correct. Okay, here, here's what it actually is. So here are the other examples of female anger that we have been ignoring. Solange. Yes, really, Solange Knowles. Okay, we, we weren't ignoring her anger. She was beating the crap out of Jay-Z in an elevator, right? I mean, that's, that's what was happening there. Britney Spears. I don't recall when we were angry at her anger. I just remember her getting, like, wildly out of control and attempting to beat, a, beat on a paparazzi. Shania O'Connor. Uh, the, the Dixie Chicks. Rosie O'Donnell. What does any of this have to do with sexual assault or us disrespecting their anger? Okay, then it says, we don't even have to be angry to be called angry. Accusations of being an angry black woman chased Michelle Obama throughout her tenure at the White House. Well, I mean, to be fair, in 2008, she did say that she was not proud of the country until it nominated her husband. That seems kind of angry to me. And if you watched any of her speeches in 2008, they were kind of angry. Later, she became kind of a model first lady. But at the beginning, she had a very different persona. It was very much like Hillary Clinton in her early years in the White House and then shifting in her later years to be sort of more soft and cuddly. And then she finishes, the decades-long smearing of Hillary Clinton as an unhinged shrew culminated one year ago when, despite maintaining a preternatural calm throughout the most brutal campaign in living memory, she lost the election to masculinity's ap apoplectic id. Okay, so the, the, the smearing of Hillary Clinton as an unhinged shrew is not really a smearing. She's an unhinged shrew. Okay, like there, there, there have been actual reports of Hillary Clinton throwing lamps at her husband. Okay, Hillary Clinton apparently was not nice to Secret Service members. Hillary Clinton went out and complained about a vast right-wing conspiracy when her husband committed perjury while, while, you know, sexually harassing the help. Hillary Clinton, in this campaign, there's tape of her shouting into camera, why am I not up by 50 points? We all remember when she did a speech calling half the population deplorables. Okay, Hillary Clinton is not a model of preternatural calm. You have to be crazy to think this. And then she says, this is my favorite line. Like every other feminist with a public platform, I am perpetually cast as a disapproving scold. But what's the alternative? To approve? I do not approve. Right, because you're a disapproving scold. I mean, like, I, like, isn't that the definition? You're scolding me and you're disapproving. Like, what am I missing here? And then she says, not only are women expected to weather sexual violence, intimate partner violence, workplace discrimination, institutional subordination, the expectation of free domestic labor, the blame for our own victimization, and all the subtler invisible cuts that undermine us daily, we are not even allowed to be angry about it. Close your eyes and think of America. Right, it's like America raping you, right? I'm going to explain a little more on how stupid this is. This is one of the worst columns I've ever read in the New York Times. And then it was rivaled this morning by one from our good friend, I believe it's Charles Blow writing this, uh, the aptly named Charles Blow, uh, writing at the New York Times. Here is, uh, but before we get to any of that, first I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Birch Gold. So right now, if you're looking at the stock market and thinking maybe there's a bit of a bubble, maybe it's a little overvalued, looking at the real estate market, thinking the same thing. If you're hedging against the possibility of a downturn, you need to have some money in precious metals. And the people I trust for that are the folks at Birch Gold Group. They sell physical precious metals for your own possession. They will ship metals directly to your front door. They have a long-standing track record of success with thousands of satisfied clients, countless five-star reviews, and A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Contact Birch Gold Group now to request a free information kit on physical precious metals. 
They have a comprehensive 16-page kit. It'll tell you everything you need to know about protecting your savings and, again, moving your IRA or 401k out of stocks and into precious metals if that's something you want to do. To get that no-cost, no-obligation kit, go to birchgold.com Ben. That's birchgold.com Ben. Use the slash Ben so they know that we sent you. Okay, so, so Lindy West, again, this is endemic to the feminist left, this belief that anger uh, is, the, is the driving force and they have a reason to be angry. She says that women are expected to weather sexual violence. Who expects women to weather sexual violence? Like, really, who is it that says, yeah, women are getting raped, big deal. The only person I can think of is somebody like maybe Gay Talese, the, the columnist who came out in defense of Kevin Spacey. But who is saying that intimate, violent, intimate partner violence is okay or workplace discrimination? The expectation of free domestic labor, I don't even know what that means. Like, I expect my, mother, I expect my wife to actually help with the chores. Um, I help with the chores, too. Like, this is part of being an adult. Like, I understand Lindy West doesn't want to wash her underwear, but tough. Like, it's just insane. And finally, she says, we are expected to agree and we comply with the paternal admonition that it is irresponsible and hyper-emotional to request one female president after 241 years of male ones because that would be tokenism, anti-democratic and dangerous, as though generations of white male politicians haven't proven themselves utterly disinterested in caring for the needs of communities to which they do not belong. Okay, so now she's saying that we're a sexist if we don't think that you should elect a woman based on her sex, which is sexist, by the way. And then she says, white men's monopolistic death grip on power in America doesn't belie precisely the kind of identity politics they claim to abhor. As though competent, qualified women are so thin on the ground that even a concerted, sincere, large-scale search for one would be a long shot and any resulting candidate a compromise. No, we just think Hillary was a crappy candidate. I was perfectly willing to vote for, you know, Elizabeth Dole. You know, I'd be perfectly willing to vote for Nikki Haley. I'd be perfectly willing to vote for a bevy of women, but not Hillary Clinton. So I, I love this. This is the very end of her column. She says... I did not call myself a feminist until I was nearly 20 years old. My world had taught me that feminists were ugly and ridiculous. Well, actually, your column is basically teaching the world that feminists are ugly and ridiculous. And she said, I did not want to be ugly and ridiculous. Fail. I wanted to be cool and desired by men, even as a teenager. By the way, I'm not speaking physical ugliness. I'm talking about ugly attitude. I want to be cool and desired by men because even as a teenager, I knew implicitly that pandering for male approval was a woman's most effective currency. It was my best shot at success, or at least safety. And I wasn't sophisticated enough to see that success and safety bestowed conditionally aren't success and safety at all. What she's saying here is that I should be as much of a turd as I possibly want to be, and everyone should make way for me. Well, maybe the reason that you're off-putting is because you're off-putting. Is that possible? Is it possible the reason that you haven't been as successful as you want to be is not because of sexism, it's because you're a nasty shrew? Okay, because this, this column reads like a nasty shrew. Okay, you call yourself a disapproving scold, that's what this column is. You imply that all white men are out to harm women. You imply that all conservatives don't care about women. You imply that we are using the superstructure of power in order to keep you down. I don't care about keeping Lindy West. I don't even know who Lindy West is. I don't spend my time thinking about Lindy West, except when she writes in the pages of the New York Times and accuses people like me of being sexist for no reason and then suggests I want to tamp down her anger. Listen, Lindy, be as angry as you want to be. I hope you're angrier. I hope you continue to grow angrier because the angrier you are and the louder you yell, the more off-putting you are and the more people see your agenda for what it is, which is baseless rage. You're living in the freest country in the history of the world for women, by far. And you're sitting here complaining that you're being somehow downtrodden by men in the pages of the New York Times. She says, it took me two decades to become brave enough to be angry. Feminism is the collective manifestation of female anger. Well, if that's what it is, no wonder so many people are rejecting it. Because any movement that is a culmination of collective anger is not going to be a good movement. And by the way, I've said that about movements both left and right. I think that's what the alt-right is based on, is based on an unrooted, unevidenced anger. Okay, so that is, uh, that is one perspective that the left is taking a year after Trump. They're doubling down on the anger. But that's not the only way they're doubling down. So Charles Blow, as I say, has a piece of the New York Times 
in which he says it's very important for the left to re-embrace identity politics. Now he says he, he, he's very happy about what happened in Virginia. He's suggesting that what happened in Virginia is a resuscitation of the Obama coalition. Now, this is factually not true. What happened in Virginia is a lot of college-educated white people went out and voted against Donald Trump, in Northern Virginia particularly. Okay, so Ed Gillespie actually won more of the black vote in Virginia than Donald Trump won. Ed Gillespie won less of the college-educated white vote in Virginia than Donald Trump won. Okay, so the fact is that when Charles Blow says that identity politics is the, the identity politics coalition of the left, you know, blacks and Hispanics and gays and young people, that this coalition is what's going to drive the left to victory. He's ignoring the fact that's not actually what drove them to victory in Virginia. Widespread disapproval for the Republican Party and Trump drove them to victory in Virginia. But here's what Blow has to say. He says, Tuesday night's election results were a major shot in the arm for the anti-Donald Trump resistance and a major slap in the face for all the Democrats who caterwauled last November about how the party had focused too much on courting women and minorities and ignored angry white men. Okay, well, Democrats weren't just caterwauling last November about that. They should have been caterwauling for years. Obama lost the House. He lost the Senate. He lost the governor's houses. He lost state legislatures across the country. And he did that on the basis of identity politics. The reason that they won in Virginia was not because of identity politics. The reason they won in Virginia was actually because there was a lot of resistance to Trump personally that crossed a lot of these boundaries. But according to Blow, it's because of identity politics. So he says, objecting to identity politics is just a guise for objecting to politics for and about people who are not white. So when I say I don't like identity politics of white people or non-white people, when I say that we shouldn't have the politics of solidarity based on race, apparently I'm still standing up for white people. This is basically the argument you hear very frequently on college campuses with regards to so-called white privilege, right? That if you refuse to acknowledge white privilege and you say instead people should be judged as individuals, this is you reinforcing white privilege after all because the standards of society are standards that benefit white people. So Blow is saying the same thing. He's saying if you say no identity politics, what you're really saying is only identity politics for white people. That's asinine. But here's what he says. He says, he's quoting feminist author Lori Penny in Salon, which is always a, a good hint something crappy is about to happen. He says, all politics are identity politics, especially the politics of the far right. They're about this idea of white identity, this idea of male identity that feels so under attack at the moment. When people attack identity politics, they're attacking politics that prioritizes or even includes women, people of color, queer people. Uh, no, that's not right. When I attack identity politics, I'm suggesting that there are ideas that ought to unite us beyond the boundaries of our group identity. And that holds true for white people and black people. That holds true for Hispanic people and Jewish people. I, I think ethnic identity is meaningless. But Charles Blow thinks that if I say that, that's just me upholding white privilege. And so what we really need to do if you're Democrats is double down on the intersectionality politics. He says, that whole conversation about how we must reject identity politics left a lasting bad taste in my mouth. He's such a terrible writer. I will confess and I'm still smarting over the implication of those conversations, in part because as a black man in America, I have seen the corpse flower that can grow from that seed. So if you reject identity politics, apparently you won't hurt black people. He says, I'm always reminded of when the Republican Party abandoned black people who had been nothing but loyal to them to pursue the very racists who hated black people. It was called the Southern Strategy, and it wasn't that long ago. And black people who have never forgotten that betrayal now vote overwhelmingly Democratic. There are about seven false statements in this particular paragraph. Uh, false statement number one, black people had started to vote for Democrats in large numbers by the 1930s because of FDR. Number two, the idea that the Republicans pursued the so-called Southern strategy and that this is what won them the South is just not true. The Republican Party only dominated the South in the 1990s, right? It remained all Democratic areas in Congress, particularly throughout the 70s, 60s, and 80s. It was only in the 90s Republicans started to make inroads. In other words, young people in the South moved Republican because industry had come into the South, not because of race issues, not because of race issues. If race issues played a role, it was a pretty minor one. 
I, I have a full thing debunking this. There's a full video I've done debunking this that we're going to be releasing pretty soon about the Southern, the so-called Southern strategy. Also worth noting, Democrats were pandering along racial lines at the time. George Wallace in 1968 was running as a Democrat, right? And then he moved independent. It was Democrats who were standing in the doorways of, of schools to prevent integration. It was not Republicans doing that. And the idea that in the 70s, the party switched is just not true either. Because if that were true, you would expect to see all these Democratic politicians in the South turn Republican. None of them did except Strom Thurmond. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of governors and senators. They all remain Democrats. So this is just not true. Then he says, the fact that Democratic strategists were even actively thinking of courting voters who turn a blind eye to or actively cheer Trump's bigotry underscored for me the fact that for this party, principles can be situational. So in other words, he's saying, abandon white voters who voted for Trump, they're all racist. He says, I wrote in January, the Enlightenment must never bow to the Inquisition, and I hold fast to that position. In other words, the identity politics of black folks and Hispanic folks is better than the identity politics of white folks, and so the Democratic Party should turn away from the white vote. He says, for me, there is no middle. If you are supporting Donald Trump, you're supporting Trumpism and all that goes with it. That means you are supporting a modus operandi that attacks people of color on every term, but keeps white supremacists safe. You're supporting Trump's demeaning of women. You're supporting his bullying. You're supporting his corruption. You're supporting his pathological lying. You want to know how Democrats could blow it in 2018 by listening to Charles Blow? Really? Because what he's suggesting is that every Trump voter is a deplorable. Every single one. Right? They didn't vote for Trump as the lesser of two evils. They didn't vote for Trump because they wanted some policy wins. They voted for him because they all silently approve of all of the bad things that Trump does. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's correct. And I think if Democrats want to ignore the 63 million people who voted for Donald Trump in this last election cycle by writing them off, good luck winning elections. Good luck winning elections. He finishes by saying, playing to the identity politics of Trump-loving angry white men, a clear expression of white supremacist patriarchy isn't a panacea. Uh, panacea. It's not even prudent. And, converse, and conversely, inclusive identity politics isn't a poison. White supremacy and the panic induced when that supremacy is threatened is the poison. So he says inclusive identity politics is good, meaning identity politics not for white people, but for everyone else, that's good. White identity politics is bad. Now notice how the term anger is used here. I'm going to explain in just a second how the term anger has morphed between these two columns that I've just read you and why it's demonstrative of the fact that for the Democrats, everything is a tool, everything is a means Toward, toward victory, but they're actually undercutting their own agenda. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Beachbody On Demand. So next week, I will be traveling. And when I travel and I'm in my hotel, I do not typically go to the gym. Instead, I stay in the room and I use Beachbody On Demand. They have tons of courses. They have tons of nutritional, uh, nutritional recipes. Great ways for you to get in shape. Beachbody On Demand is an online fitness streaming service. It gives you unlimited access to a wide variety of highly effective world-class workouts, stuff you've heard of. Pio, 21 Day Fix, P90X, Insanity, right? They've got all of these things that you can stream live. And then I just start, you know, I've been doing P90X when I'm on the road. It's a really great workout that fills in the gaps, uh, especially for when I'm not home. Uh, and uh, they have over 100 recipe videos where you can learn how to prep your meals and cook kid or vegan friendly meals. It's called Fixate. That's the name of the show. Yeah, you know, again, this is, it, it's the best way to, to work out, whether you're at home or on the road. I use it frequently when I'm on the road myself. My listeners can claim a free trial membership. Just text Shapiro to 313131. Text Shapiro to 313131 and get full access to the entire platform for free and try it out. Again, again Beachbody On Demand is the best way to get in shape and stay in shape. Shapiro, text it to 313131 and get full access to the entire platform for free. There are already over a million people who are, who are members of the service. Beachbody On Demand, all the things that you've always wanted to try out but haven't had a chance to yet, Shapiro, text it to 313131. Okay, so Charles Blow's final comment here, that 
you shouldn't play to the identity politics of angry white men. You know, this is, this is why you see the reactionary politics happening from both sides. On the one side, you see Charles Blow saying, black people have a right to be angry. Hispanic people have a right to be angry. You have Lindy West. Females have a right to be angry. And anyone who denies the right to be angry, anyone who even suggests that maybe the anger isn't justified, those are all the bad guys. And then they turn around and say, you know who the real angry people are? They're the people on the right. They're all the white people, the angry white people. And then you know what that does? A lot of angry people on the right, they say, yeah, you know what? Screw it. As long as we're going to play this game, as long as we're going to play this game, then we'll play this game. This is how you end up with a reactionary politics that makes the entire country worse, regardless of who wins elections. I don't think this will help Democrats win elections, by the way. I don't think screaming at the sky, I don't think being angry at the patriarchy, I don't think being angry at the Constitution or being angry at the, at the vast bulk of Americans who happen to be white, by the way. 69, 70% of Americans are still white. You know, I do not think that this is smart politics by the Democrats, but this is what they're going for anyway. This is what they're going for anyway. Uh, and meanwhile, the Democrats are attacking each other. So despite their victories in Virginia, there are still some systemic obstacles Democrats have to overcome, including the fact that a lot of the districts that they won the other night uh, are districts that were Hillary districts to begin with. They're going to have to flip a few Trump districts in order for them to actually take the House. So I would say right now that if you have to bet, you bet on the Democrats taking the House, but it's not an, it's not an easy bet. It's a, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a stretch bet. The Democrats are attacking each other, however. Bernie Sanders and Donna Brazil are going full-on, full-bore against Hillary Clinton. This is what the Democrats have to do, but there are a lot of Democrats who are pushing back against it. Here's, here's Sanders praising Donna Brazil, former head of the DNC, who uh, has been ripping Hillary up and down. Look, Donna Brazil showed an enormous amount of courage uh, in describing the truth as she saw it when she came into the leadership of the DNC. Um, I don't think there's any sane human being who doesn't believe uh, that my campaign was taking on the entire establishment, including the DNC. But Anderson, to be very honest with you, my job, our job, is to go forward, is to do everything we can to defeat this right-wing agenda of the Republican Party and the Trump administration not to look backwards. So one of the things I think that's happening inside the Democratic Party, aside from the, the internecine battles, is I think that you actually have a battle of cults. I think of a battle of cults. Brazil said it herself. She said that the Clinton campaign was basically like a cult, but I think it's more than that, right? Here's Donna Brazil saying that last night. It was a cult. I, I felt like it was a cult. You could not penetrate them. I mean, I look, you can... I'm a grassroots organizer. I know, I know street politics better than I know sweet politics. I know how to touch people where they live, work, play, and pray. But I cannot, do any, I cannot help a candidate, Joe, if I don't have the resources, if I cannot spend the resources that the party is raising. Okay, so she was describing the Clinton campaign as a cult. There's also the Bernie Sanders cult, and then there's still the Barack Obama cult. So Charles Blow is a member of the Obama cult. Right? Lindy West is a member of the Hillary cult. And Bernie Sanders is a member of the Bernie Sanders cult. So all of these various groups are battling with each other for supremacy inside the Democratic Party. The only thing that unites them is opposition to President Trump, which is why President Trump needs to do a better job, because you can unify under the banner of opposing something like President Trump. But these cults are exactly what have led the Democratic Party to its own demise, right? What's created this is the Democratic Party let Obama have his way with the DNC. He ran up huge debts. He killed the party down ballot. And so they lost seats all across the country. Then they turned over the party to the cult of Hillary, who proceeded to destroy the party even further. Right, she helped shore them up financially, but she lost them the presidency to the worst Republican presidential candidate of my lifetime, President Trump. And now the Bernie Sanders cult is trying to take over, and they're going to throw out the non-believers. These cult fights are not good for parties. The reason that I bring this up is because I think that on the right, 
there's a tendency to get into cult politics too. And this is something that I really have objected to for a couple of years now. I have always said, the point of politicians is not to worship them. They are people in a job with a job to do. If they're not doing the job, you criticize them. If they are doing the job, you praise them. I've said this before. The presidency is a, is a glorified DMV job. Being the president means that you have a job, a constitutional-oriented duty. You're supposed to fulfill those obligations. That's all. We're not supposed to worship you. We're not supposed to pretend you're some great godlike figure. We're not supposed to say that everything you do is right. But there's a tendency on, on all sides, I think, to fall into this cult-like behavior. And if Republicans imitate the cult-like behavior of Democrats toward Obama or toward Hillary or toward Sanders, they're going to pay the exact same price. You're seeing that happen with, with President Trump, that there's a feeling inside Republican halls of power that if you ever criticize Trump or if you don't praise him sufficiently, even if you keep your mouth shut on Trump, then somehow you're undermining the, the great idol that is Trump. And so you're seeing figures like Paul Ryan feeling the necessity to go out there and pay lip service to Trump, even when it may not be particularly beneficial to do so. So here's Paul Ryan, who's trying to pass a tax cut into law right now. We'll talk about that tax cut and why it's a problem in just a second. But here is, here is Ryan saying that the Bush era is over. We're now living in Trump world. Do you have to make a choice as Republicans, either you're going to side with President Bush and his policies, 43, of more uh, free trade and, and maybe some type of uh, immigration uh, compromise, or do you have to go with Donald Trump? Is it, is it going to be a choice for Republicans, uh, Bush or Trump? We already made that choice. We're with Trump. We already made that choice. That's, that's a choice we made at the beginning of the year. That's a choice we made during the campaign, which is we merged our agendas. We ran on a joint agenda with Donald Trump. We got together with Donald Trump when he was president-elect Trump and walked through what is it we want to accomplish okay, in the next Okay, here's why this years. is not useful. This idea that we, we, we chose between Bush and Trump, no, you didn't. Okay, you're there to implement a set of policy positions. You don't have to choose Trump. You don't have to choose Bush. You can think both of them are crappy, right? You can do all of these things. But what you do have to do is have an agenda. As I say, the cult-like politics of the Democrats with regard to Barack Obama really hurt them down ballot. The cult-like politics with Hillary really hurt them. Cult-like politics with regard to Trump will hurt them too because if you, are, if you are treating a president like he's a cult leader, then you are going to ignore warning signs that would allow you to pull the car away from the ditch. Right? Typically, if you're going to define a cult, typically the, way, the, the sort of traditional way to define a cult is that it has three features. It's exclusive, it's secretive, it's authoritarian. So exclusive means that you're the only one with the truth. Everyone who doesn't have the truth is, is sort of damned to hell, right? And that's, there's certainly this aspect here, right? This is what Trump said about Ed Gillespie. Basically, Trump said to Gillespie, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And if you don't follow me, you got nothing. Right? So he didn't embrace me strong enough, and that's why you lost. Secretive means there's some sort of secret to it. Like everyone inside the Trump group, you know, people who are, are ardently pro-Trump. I'm not talking about everyone who, who voted for Trump, of course. I'm talking about people like Bill Mitchell, right? People who worship the ground Trump walks on. For those people, there is a, a secret decoder ring where everything Trump does is genius. And finally, authoritarianism, this, this sort of unquestioning obedience of the leader. When you do this with a party leader, you end up ignoring bad signs and you end up getting into useless wars. You know, Steve Bannon is one of the, the chief architects of the sort of cult of Trump. And Bannon is going around leading wars against members of his own party who are trying to pass Trump's agenda right now because it's more important to uphold the glory of the leader than it is to actually pass legislation that Trump says he wants to pass. Here is Trump saying that, that Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, ought to resign. Again, I'm not a Mitch McConnell fan. I've been bashing McConnell for years. But the idea that McConnell has to resign because of what exactly? Bannon can't say. He just wants a scalp so that he can go back to Trump and say, listen, I got a scalp. I tell you, Sean, I, I'm to the point that I think Mitch McConnell, to really bring unity 
to the Republican Party and get things done. I think Mitch McConnell ought to tender his resignation. What he ought to do is offer to resign as soon as taxes are done. We can't do it in the middle of taxes, but I think Mitch McConnell tomorrow should tender his resignation and say, hey, after we get taxes done, I will step aside and we'll have a revote on majority leader. Because I got to tell you, there needs to be a sense of urgency in the Senate. You know, over the last about week, you know, they're now going to work six days a week. They're talking about canceling Thanksgiving. They passed the budget. Uh, they're starting to move on federal judges. But that's all because, quite frankly, we put the spotlight on Mitch McConnell and said that this guy is just not supporting the president. Okay, that, of course, is utterly untrue. Okay, it's not that Steve Bannon put the spotlight on McConnell. Everybody has been putting pressure on McConnell for years. But what this comes down to is, does Trump want his agenda passed or does he not want his agenda passed? Or is it all just posturing? If it's all just posturing, that's very Ob it's an Obama way to govern, right? And it's an Obama way to destroy your own party uh, further down the ballot. Okay, I want to talk about some things I like, things I hate, and the big idea today. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is an online grocer with a mission to make healthy living affordable and accessible to everyone. For me, you know, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to get grid, good organic kosher products. Well, kosher products are actually at places like Thrive Market. Uh, they are basically a, a, you know, here's the reality. You can get what you want from Thrive Market that you normally have to go to Whole Foods for, right? If you went to Whole Foods, Whole Foods is, is much more expensive in many cases. You have to go there. You have to deal with all the, the jackasses, the, the green jackasses in their, in their unicorn fart-powered Priuses bothering you in the parking lot. Thrive, you don't have to do that, right? You just go online and you get all of your premium non-GMO organic products at wholesale prices delivered directly to your door, right? With one click of a button, you can sort all of their catalog by 90 values. If I just want kosher products, I just say, give me kosher products. They'll show me all the kosher products. If I just want vegan products, they can do that as well. It is hyper curated. So instead of having to choose between 15 different almond butters at the local health store, instead, you might find three or four almond butters on Thrive, but you know that they are sourced from the best of the best because they only choose the best. And you'll, you can find supplements, protein powders, all the stuff that allows you to get in shape. Imagine spending 12 bucks for Justin's almond butter as opposed to 16 bucks, right? That's, that's how Thrive Market works. For all my listeners, my friends at Thrive Market are offering you right now $60 of free groceries plus free shipping and a 30-day free trial, which is pretty amazing. That's the equivalent of tubs of... of collagen or, or digestive enzymes. It's the equivalent of what you would be spending at Whole Foods on stuff that you'll never use, but you'll be spending it at Thrive Market instead. All for switching to Thrive Market for your online grocery needs. Again, Thrive Market, they're offering you 60 bucks of free groceries plus free shipping and a 30-day 30 30 free trial. Again, their prices are already 25 to 15% off retail, and now they're offering 60 bucks of free groceries as well. So it's a terrific deal. Thrivemarket.com slash Shapiro. Never go to Whole Foods again. Spend way less money, and then you also don't have to deal with the, the crowds of weirdos who are at Whole Foods. So Thrivemarket.com slash Shapiro. Get your instant $60 of free groceries. So go ahead and check it out and use slash Shapiro not only for the $60 of free groceries, but so they know that we sent you as well. Okay, so... As far as tax reform goes, uh, the Republicans do need to pass tax reform, but not because it's going to win them any great credit from the American people. They have to pass it because otherwise they've literally done nothing this year. And there are a bunch of problems with the current tax plan that's being tried out by the Senate. Senate Republicans are already watering this thing down. They're revisiting key provisions in the GOP House proposal, including eliminating property tax deductions, as well as state income tax deductions. So everybody in California just gets jacked. Increasing the size of child care credits. Um, offering more help to small businesses, this is according to the LA Times, and having corporate tax cuts phase in or expire, according to those familiar with the negotiations. So in other words, this will not be a massive tax cut. It will be a temporary tax cut with some tax increases, also that they can say they passed something. I'd rather that they pass nothing than they pass a bad bill. Um, I haven't seen you know, the final Senate bill, but it's not great. Okay, they're not talking about 
about increasing individual tax brackets. This is not what I voted for the Republican Party for. And this is not what I voted for the Republican Party for. But unfortunately, it's all become a game of which leader do you follow as opposed to which policy do you espouse. I don't see Trump really espousing low tax policies in a coherent way. I don't see Brian doing it. I don't see any of the Republicans doing it. And that's incredibly frustrating to me, somebody who actually cares about the policy much more than I care about the personal infighting. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things I hate and the big idea. So things I like, you know, we'll, we'll, first we have to go to break. First we're going to break and we're going to, uh, on, on Facebook and, uh, and YouTube, for $9.99 a month, you can get your subscription to dailywire.com. When you do that, then you get the rest of our show live on video. You get the rest of Andrew Clavin's show live on video and Michael Knowles' show live on video. You get all of them uh, for free when you subscribe for $9.99 a month. You also get to be part of our mailbag. Uh, there, there's uh, something called The Conversation, which is coming next Tuesday uh, with Michael Knowles uh, at 2 p.m. Pacific, and you can ask questions, right? We're going to broadcast it live on YouTube and Facebook, but you can actually, uh, you can actually check it out and, and ask questions. You can be one of the people asking questions to Michael God love him, uh, over at, at our Facebook or Daily Wire website when you subscribe and then log into to Daily Wire in order to ask questions. So check that out. If you want an annual subscription, you get all of those things. Plus, you get this, the very greatest in beverage vessels that I have been sipping radically all day. The leftist here is hot or cold Daily Wire tumbler, world famous, often imitated, never duplicated. Check it out. Uh, if you want to listen later for free, go to YouTube or SoundCloud or iTunes, subscribe, leave us a review. We always appreciate it. We are the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast in the nation. Alrighty, so time for a thing I like. So I could not help but but laugh hysterically yesterday over this. So USA Today ran a video uh, in which they were explaining what weapon had been used in the Texas shooting, in the Texas church shooting. It was a Ruger AR-556. Uh, and uh, here is, I, I need to show you some of this video because it's, there's some parts of it that are, are quite insane. It says, what we know about the Ruger AR-556. Base model, buttstock, rear sight, front sight, handguard, 30-round magazine. Trigger. Okay, so they're teaching you what the parts of a gun are. It says, AR-15-style rifles have many aftermarket options, some common, some rare. It says, possible modifications. 100-round drum magazine. Under-barrel 12-gauge shotgun. Trigger crank. Chainsaw bayonet. And this is the... Pause it there. This is the one that got the internet going. Chainsaw bayonet... I don't know anyone who's ever attached a chainsaw bayonet to your, to your rifle. First of all, you set that sucker running, it's going to throw off your shooting. Also, I mean, when's the last time you had to chop down a tree to shoot at a bear? Like, you're in the middle of a forest, and you're like, shoot. Okay, like, what? That, that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. I mean, I guess it's perfect for Gears of War, or, uh, or it's, it's great for if you're on The Walking Dead and you need to saw through somebody's head or something, but chainsaw bayonet, so... Obviously, this spurred a lot of, uh, of imitators. Really ridiculous. So people started making other possible modifications to tell USA Today about. So here are some of them. They're really funny. Uh, so here is uh, a one with a miniature AR-15 attachment with an even AR, a smaller AR-15 attachment under that. So it's a, it's a modification of modification. This one, I think, is very powerful. This, of course, is the nuclear weapon bayonet. So underneath the gun, you can actually see there's a nuclear bomb, which is, I think, very useful. Uh, this one uh, <laughs> is a picture of the USA Today executive gun editor, and it's a picture of a guy who has a gun that has pasted on it like a hood ornament uh, and a jackknife with a knife, a fork, and a spoon, and a flashlight and keys. Pretty amazing. Love it. Uh, this one <laughs> is uh, millennials have now ruined guns, too, and it's a picture of the AR-15 with a selfie 
<laughs> the selfie stick uh, attached as the modification. And then, of course, the famous lightsaber AR modification that goes underneath the gun. Very, just spectacular. And this, of course, uh, was, uh, was uh, one of my friends put this one together. This is the most deadly modification that you can put on an AR-15. It's the AR-15 with the Chuck Norris modification up top. Uh, and you just release the Chuck Norris. But really, guys, just, like, don't talk about guns anymore. Like, if you don't know what you're talking about, please don't talk about guns. And, yes, it turns out there are many possible modifications. Presumably, you could put a tank on the bottom of your AR-15. But that does not actually mean that it's something that people use. And nobody actually, USA Today had to issue a tweet clarifying they weren't saying a chain gun, a chain, a chainsaw gun was used in Texas. Say, by the way, we were just saying it's a possible, it's a possible modification, not that the shooter actually used a chainsaw bayonet. In the church, thanks for the clarification, USA Today. Well done. No wonder no one trusts you when it comes to gun stuff if you legitimately put out a video that shows a chainsaw bayonet <laughs> as a possible modification to an AR. By the way, everyone who's ripping on the AR, just quick note, the guy who shot the bad guy was using an AR when he did it. Okay, time for a quick thing that I hate. So, a thing that I hate today. There's an article from The Guardian, and you see these kind of articles all the time. It says, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett are wealthier than poorest half of the United States. Institute for Policy Studies, Lefty Center, warns of a moral crisis and says Trump tax change proposals will exacerbate disparities. Okay, I hate this line of attack. I think it's really stupid. The idea that somebody is wealthy, so you are poor, is not true. If that were true, capitalism would not have made lives better for the poorest people around the world radically better. Okay, half the world has been lifted out of disparate, desperate poverty over the last 30 years thanks to the rise of free trade and capitalism. This idea that, that the economy is a zero-sum game belies truth. It is just not true. So what if Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett are sitting on $250 billion of fortune? Who cares? You know how many people work for those people? You know how many people are, are made rich by those people? Tons of people. An economist and co-author of the report, he says, wealth inequality is on the rise. Now is the time for actions that reduce inequality, not tax cuts for the very wealthy. How about more prosperity for everyone? If you want to redistribute all the income, we could do that, I suppose, by killing the rich and just handing out their money to the poor. Gets rid of a lot of the income inequality. Also, it makes everyone's life a lot worse. I hate this idea that, that wealth disparity means poverty. That's just not true. If I'm making $100,000 a year and you're making a million dollars a year, we have a bigger wealth disparity than if I am making $10,000 a year and you're making $5,000 a year, right? We have a $900,000 disparity as opposed to a $5,000 disparity. Which one would you prefer? If you answer the latter, I would say that you're a bad person. Really, if you'd say that you prefer to make $5,000 a year just so I make 10, that shows that you're a jealous punk, not that you actually care about your living standard. Okay. Time for the big idea. So on Thursdays, we talk about the big idea. There's a lot of talk this week about thoughts and prayers. And so I thought that I would talk very briefly about the problem of theodicy. Okay, so theodicy is the problem of how can God be omnipotent and good, and yet bad things happen in the world. And it seems like every time something bad happens in the world, the left says, how could a good God allow this? This is why I don't believe in religion, as though religion had never contemplated this question, right? Despite the fact that every major religious thinker ever has contemplated this question, right? Seriously, all of them. The idea that God is benevolent and good is based on the idea that God is purely actual, right? That God is the, that everything that exists is due to God because God is the purely actual, basically in the, in the Aristotelian model anyway. The idea here is the, 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 Arist the Aristotle Aquinas Maimonides model of God. Basically, the idea here is that everything in life has aspects that are either actual or potential, right? If you have a candle on your desk and it's made of wax and you melt it, okay, it had the potential to be a melted pool of wax before, but something actual had to act upon the wax in order to melt it, right? A fire had to act upon the wax, which was actual, in order to melt it into a pool of wax so it wasn't in candle form. This is true for all things in the universe, according to Aristotelian thought, except for 
if there is something that can actualize, if there's something that has no potential, right? It just is the purely actual. What it is is actuality, right? Its essence is the actual. Well, the idea in Aristotle's notion of good is that what the good is, what, me, what makes something good, is that it is, it is fitted to its purpose, right? So if, you are, if, if something is good that is fitted to its purpose, then God, being purely actual, is fitted to God's purpose because his purpose is the actuality, right? God's purpose is him, in other words. And so the idea here is that God is purely actual. So this leads to the question, okay, so let's say God is purely good. Is he, according to whose standard? So is he good according to human moral standards? So clearly this is something with which people struggle, right? In the Bible, Abraham struggles with God and he questions God and he asks why God is doing certain things. And at a certain point, God says, you know, I can't explain this to you. This is supposedly what Moses asked God when, he, when Moses says, show me your face. And God says, you can't see my face and live, right? The idea there is that Moses is asking why bad things happen to good people and vice versa. And God is saying, you can't know the answer. So the Jewish answer to theodicy, why bad things happen to good people, is twofold. One is with regard to human action, and one is with regard to nature. So the answer is, with regard to human action is, it is not God's responsibility if I decide to do something terrible today. Right? That's my responsibility. The reason God created us as creative beings is that we have free will, and we can choose to do differently. If that's the case, then God, by, by nature, has to restrict his own dominance over the universe so that I can have free will and act out freely. That means I'm responsible for my own evil. That's why human evil exists, so that there's the potential for human goods, that we can discover our purpose and fulfill it. Right? As far as the notion of other evils like cancer, like a child with cancer, Judaism basically does what a lot of other religions do and says, listen, anyone who presumes to give you an answer on this is full of it. There are no good answers, right? You just don't, we don't understand. We don't understand, right? Maimonides actually says that it's forbidden to ask those sorts of questions for the, to the extent that there's no good answer to them. Uh, Augustine says that evil doesn't really exist, right? Augustine's take on evil is that evil doesn't exist. It is just the absence of good, right? The idea being that if the good is fulfilled potential, then if potential is not entirely fulfilled, that is an evil. So it's a, it's a diminishment. This so-called privation theory, right? It's privation of the good is what evil is. Evil doesn't exist as an independent entity. So when you see somebody who's blind, the evil of their blindness is that it is not a fulfillment of sight, Right? It's a lack of something. So God limits himself in the universe so we can have free will, and that allows for lack to, to lack of something to make good into evil, essentially. And, uh, there are many, many theories on theodicy, but the idea that I want to promote today is that theodicy is a serious question with which we should deal, but atheism has no problem with theodicy. I don't even understand how an atheist can ask about whether God is good or evil or whether uh, a situation is good or evil because all that exists in scientific materialist land is evolutionary biology. There's nothing good or evil about evolutionary biology. There's just scientific fact. So why are you asking about the moral contents of things happening in the universe? Why are you asking about the moral contents of even human action? You're just, you don't ask if a dog eats, a, if a, dog eats a, a, a snail. You don't ask about why the dog ate the snail. You don't say, why is the dog so evil? Right? Moral components only enter into the picture when you are talking about the moral possibilities of a universe constructed by a god who is bound by the dictates of his own morality. That's the only time that you even have these discussions. So even asking the theodicy question is presupposing an orderly moral universe that you can ask God about. Okay, so we'll be back here tomorrow with more and the mailbag. Hopefully I'll feel a little bit better and sound less like garbage, but we'll find out. If not, you'll bear through it just like I am. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. 
Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 